And now with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. One of my favorite podcasts of the year is after we have just finished and another important year, a 12-month period of time, that's a big deal in the press. It's a big deal for individuals to see how they've done. And I don't normally do anything in between, but this year there's something special that I, that I want to focus on in terms of how the market is doing. There are great lessons to be learned, and I think... In many cases, the lessons that are coming from the press, from the financial press, are leaving the wrong message. And in my discussion of uh, these messages, I will be referring uh, to some tables that are under the fine-tuning your asset allocation tables. There's B1, B7, and B8. And for those who want to uh, get those uh, there at hand for, for that part of the discussion, you can uh, print those out or put them on your uh, on your screen. Whatever the case, I will be referring to those. The rest of the numbers, and there will be a lot of them, and I will do my best to keep them simple. I don't want to bury you with numbers, but at the end of the day, this business is about your emotions, and the numbers in the market, how they do, whether it's good times or bad, they're both very important. But it was headlines that got my attention. I didn't even think that of these being the headlines as of the end of June 2022. I had no idea that that was the worst six months in over 50 years of uh, stock market returns. And, I, and, and that's, that's an important number because one of the things that we try to, to let people understand is not just about the returns for the long term, but the risk you have to take to get there. And so when you hear that, worst six months in 50 years, keep in mind that is the worst beginning six months in 50 years. That is not the worst six months in 50 years. And that is one of the reasons that we produce the fine-tuning tables. Because the fine-tuning tables tell the story not focused on a particular six-month period. It could be any uh, uh, six months starting you know, one month at a time. So if I want to know the worst six months because I want to be prepared for a certain amount of risk and I'm willing to accept a certain amount of risk, you could actually walk away from the from that six-month period and think that that's kind of it. If it, It's not going to get much worse than that. Well, in fact... It has, in the last 52 years, gotten much worse than that. As a matter of fact, if we look at table B1, the fine-tuning table, this is the S&P 500 I'm looking at, I can see that that all-equity portfolio 
over the the bottom of the page after it shows that you would have had an 11% compound rate of return if you were all in the S&P 500, but the worst six months was a loss of 41.8%. So in order to get this return that we would like for the long term, it isn't a 20% loss we need to be thinking in terms of as uh, something that, that rarely happens. It's more, the, more like double that number. And keep in mind, interestingly enough, that the worst 12 months of all 12 months, starting one month at a time since 1970, the worst 12 months was virtually the same at 43.3%. And the worst drawdown from peak to valley, whether it took a month to get there or it took two years to get there, the worst decline is a minus 51% before it turned around and headed back up. And I think it's worthy of mentioning not just the S&P 500, but also, just for interest's sake, the ultimate buy and hold strategy. Remember what that is? 10% each of 10 different equity asset classes. The 10 equity asset classes that the academic community taught me earned the right to be in a diversified portfolio if you were looking for a good return and if you were looking to maximize your diversification. And for what it's worth, that particular combination compounded at 12.3%. That certainly is a huge additional return if the risk is about the same. Well, it turns out the worst six months for that particular strategy is a loss of about 48%. So you go from about 42% to 48%. You've taken about 10% more risk to get that. But anytime we look at the additional risk, we've got to ask ourselves, what is that additional return? And the additional return over the last 50 years, if you invested $1,000 at the beginning of that period, didn't add any money in, didn't take any money out, at 11%, you'd end up with about $227,000. At 12.3, about 416,000, about an 83% higher return for about 10% more risk in terms of the worst six-month experience. But then, I'm not all equities. My wife and I are 50-50 stocks and bonds. So what should we expect from a ultimate buy and hold strategy, which is what we have, in fact. And that is, according to the past, from 1970 to 2021, the worst six months, instead of being around a 48% loss, is a loss of about 26%. So I'm not crying. I'm not afraid. I'm not feeling pressured to make some decision to change my, my asset allocation because of the worst first six months of a year in the last 50 years. And I think it's important also to take a moment and look at the worldwide 
for fund equity strategy as as the way to build whatever equity portion you're going to have in your portfolio instead of the ultimate buy and hold 10 fund strategy. And it's interesting to note that the worst six-month period there was a loss of uh, 46.4%, actually a little less loss than with the the 10 fund strategy. And I, I bring this up because I know a lot of folks are kind of struggling. Many have followed the 10 fund strategy, the ultimate buy and hold portfolio uh, for many years, and they've been very happy with it. And I am continuing myself to be happy with the 10 fund strategy. But keep in mind, I personally do not manage it. I don't want anything to do with it day by day, week by week, quarter by quarter, year by year, I'm having somebody else do it, decide when there should be any tax loss harvesting, decide where the money comes out to to fund the year's income, all of those things that I'd rather somebody else do, they also take care of 10 funds instead of four. But I can tell you, the more numbers I see, if you are a do-it-yourselfer having trouble with dealing with 10 different asset classes, the returns, the losses, the volatility, everything is almost the same whether you use 10 or you use 4. And the reason that is, if you haven't heard this before, is that they have very similar amounts of value in the portfolio. They have very similar amounts of small in the portfolio, they they're losing, missing some emerging markets and some uh, and some uh, uh, REITs, uh, but they have some international, some U.S., some large, some small, some blend, some value. Just with those four funds, it's it's in fact accomplishing what we would hope. But there's so much more in these numbers, and again. I know at the risk of too many numbers, I want you to get a feeling for why I really believe that Chris Pedersen and his best-in-class work is on the right path. Now, not the perfect path, because there is no perfect path, but his applying the disciplines that we have learned from the academic community to select what he considers to be amongst the best in each of these asset classes. And I'm going to interview him next week. I hope you don't miss that uh, that podcast because uh, that's going to be great fun talking about some of these very topics I'll bring up today, but we'll let him take us deeper. But I want you to know what I looked at when I put together these numbers. For example, he has his 10 best-in-class equity recommendations. Those 10 fulfill the large-cap blend, both U.S. international, large-cap value, U.S. international, the same as small-cap blend, and, and small-cap value, and then the REITs, and then the emerging markets. So you end up with 10 different equity asset classes. So when I looked at how each one of these ETFs performed for the first six months, I not only wanted to see how did they do uh, compared to others, 
And those others, by the way, there's two ways I looked at that. One is, what did the average ETF in that particular asset class, what did it make for that six months? And then, how did the index do for that six months that that particular ETF is competing with? Now, remember, inside all of the different asset classes, you can move around. If you want to be in bigger, small-cap value stock funds, you can. If you want to be in smaller, you can. If you want something to be closer to growth, not so deeply discounted value, you can control all those things. But here's what I know. I know in the asset class, large-cap blend, that the ETF that Chris has selected is large-cap blend, but it is not a direct exact look-alike of the S&P 500. In fact, it has more than 500 stocks in the portfolio. But here's what I know. The average uh, fund in that asset class fell 19.3%. The index for that asset class, according to Morningstar, fell 21.3%. The S&P fell 20%. So there's, you could even argue how, you know, why the difference in the benchmark or the index. Well, because people decide they're going to use different, different uh, uh indexes to represent asset classes and those indexes make a difference how they are how they are built so chris picked one that was down 18.3% that is 1% better than the average within that category and it is 3% better than the index that Morningstar considers it to be in. Now, for what it's worth, I also wanted to see, because we also have in each of these asset classes, with the exception of one, because Vanguard doesn't have it, we have also looked at how Vanguard has d- did for this, for this six-month period. And again, I am not saying that six months represents anything, but I want you to see the difference, for example, in that small difference that that Chris has decided to use. He did, not he did, the Avantis U.S. fund, equity fund, was down 18.3. The VOO, that is the S&P 500 fund uh, at uh, ETF at Vanguard. It was down 20. So I, I'm feeling good about that. I'm not feeling good about the 18% loss nor the 20% loss. And all I'm saying is, you know, how I'm, I'm giving a, I'm, I'm giving Chris a grade here, and I'm I'm thinking A. Maybe you're going to say A minus, but I'm I'm going to at least give him an A, and I I could almost go to A plus because that's an asset class that people think everybody's about the same. Well, then the next asset class is large cap value. Now there is going to be some randomness in the in the returns for these asset classes, again because 
Chris has a very specific goal as he's looking at all of these different ETFs. He's he's looking for a maybe a smaller average size, maybe more deeply discounted, maybe a fund that that represents higher quality. Well, the fund that that uh, uh, Chris selected for that particular position is the Invesco S&P 500 Pure Value. And it, in essence, was a home run. Not just for Chris, but for all the people that are following his recommendations. Because that part uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the small cap value group performed particularly well. That fund was down 6.2%. Now, that is a huge difference from the large cap blend. Now, that is about the asset class, because if you look at the average of all large cap value funds down 11.6, the index down 12.5, again, the average of all of the funds in that category were doing better in this six months than the index itself. But the fact that one of these out of the 10 uh, uh, did virtually, what, 100% better, if you will, than the, than the average in the group. That's powerful. And it helped, certainly helped in the return that, uh, that the portfolio got for the first six months. Now, the next asset class is small cap blend. And let me tell you that the average small cap blend, remember blend in a cap-weighted index is almost always going to be impacted by growth more than value, but you know, we want to have some growth in this portfolio. But for that period, the average small cap blend fund was down 20.2%. The index, and here's another example, the index that it's compared to, according to Morningstar, was down 22.1%. So the average of the of the managed portfolios here uh, did better than the index themselves. But the iShares Core S&P Small Cap ETF, IJR, that Chris ferreted out and he chose as being the best in class, was down 18.9%. So that was more than a 1% better return than the average in that category. And when we come to small cap value, I am sure that most of you remember that Avantis small cap value is Chris's choice. Now, how did the average small cap value do? A negative 14.9 as compared to a negative 14.6 for the benchmark index. But Avantis small cap value down 13.7 another approximately 1% plus advantage. Oh, and I think I forgot to mention that I was also looking at Vanguard. And if I look at, for example, that uh, large cap value that was a minus 6.2, the Vanguard ETF was down 13. 
When I look at the uh, small cap blend that Chris selected that was down 18.9, the Vanguard was down just a tad more at a minus 19.1. And when I look at the AVUV, the Avanta small cap value compared to the small cap value at Vanguard, Avantis was a minus 13.7 versus a minus 14.3 over at Vanguard. So I am saying, as I look at those four major asset classes, and remember these are the asset classes that we have taken back all the way to, uh, uh, to, to 1928 to show the year-by-year performance, and we also have a quilt chart that shows the return of combining those four asset classes. And I'm suspecting some of you have not looked at those quilt charts, so I'm going to have links in the notes to those as well. And I might as tell you, as well tell you when I'm while I'm right here, since we're focused on these first four asset classes. For those of you who have been considering or have started using the four U.S. fund strategy, best in class, for the first six months, down fourteen point three percent. And I I compare that to the down twenty for what we call the market or down 21 for the total market index. The total market index was down more than the S&P 500. And so uh, that is, I I think, well, obviously a much better return. But it shows that power of diversifying over many asset classes rather than focusing on just one. And as many of you, I'm sure, know that that if you were down in large cap growth for this first six months, you were probably down 30%. If you were in Bitcoin, you're probably down 58%. And to be fair, when we talk about growth, A 30% decline would be something like the Vanguard Large Cap Growth Fund. But you can look at something like ARC uh, down uh, over 55% for the first uh, six months. Large cap growth in some areas just took a bloodbath. And one of the asset classes that we don't take back to 1928, but that does get included in the uh, uh, in, in the U.S. equity portion, it's the REITs, and and there we use the Vanguard REIT fund. It was down 20.5. The average of all REITs down 20.6, so virtually the same, and in fact the index down 20.3. So. In reality, uh, Chris was able to outproduce uh, every index with the exception of the REIT index. And, uh, and so uh, I, I'll have to give him a, a pretty much an A-plus in the U.S. area alone. Now, I'm not going to put you through this with every asset class, so I'm going to give you just the bottom line here on the internationals. Again, he gets a good grade because there are five international asset classes from small to large plus emerging markets, blend and value as well. The average loss amongst the five internationals 
for Chris's recommendations was a minus 16. The average of those asset classes uh, in the actual ETFs that uh, are are available, a minus 17.3. So Chris's work added uh, over 1% in that part of the portfolio as well. And, uh, and the indexes uh, on, uh, on average were down 17.7. So again, the average ETF did better than the indexes. Now, this is not uncommon. When we look at shorter periods of time, it's, it's, it's kind of a 50-50 uh, toss of a coin whether the actively managed beat the, uh, uh, beat the indexes. It, 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 it takes many years before it becomes really obvious that indexes are better. So, uh, again, I'm going to give Chris, I certainly think that for that extra 1% that he was able to deliver in the equity part of the portfolio, that uh, that should be at the lowest an A minus, but I think I'd give him an A myself. But to be fair, I'm really biased because I see how hard he works uh, to deliver the uh, to deliver the goods. And I got to be sure and mention the Vanguard results for Chris versus the uh, using the Vanguard funds that we have available uh, instead of the best in class. And uh, that there, uh, Chris had a 16% loss, and the Vanguard funds had a 16.7% loss. So still an, adv- an advantage to the work that, uh, that Chris did. And remember, this really is not about Chris finding some magic over a six-month period. It is simply Chris selecting the ETFs that he thinks for the long term will do the best in these particular asset classes. Sometimes they'll be the best, and I can promise you sometimes they will not. Now, before I go any further in digging into the results of the portfolios, putting them together, the four funds, the two funds, etc., I want to focus for a few minutes on the fixed income portion of the portfolio. Um, I have been uh, not brutally attacked, <laughs> but I've had uh, some challenging conversations, mostly in emails. So there, there's there's no fisticuffs here. But but there are people who think it's crazy that I recommend people invest in bonds because because bonds are so very risky, and it is true. Uh, and the, and it's the reason we don't recommend long-term bonds is because there is a lot of potential risk in a long-term bond. And there are some bonds that, that are down 30 to 40 percent in 2022 for the first six months. And that's because they have very long maturities, like 20 and 30 years. But we don't recommend those for the stability uh, a side of a portfolio. What we recommend, and sometimes people don't realize that we have these recommendations under uh, under the portfolio recommendations, not only for the equity uh, funds and ETFs, but also for the bond portion. And what we recommend is a 20% uh, tips, 
30% short-term bonds and 50% intermediate bonds. And that is not for money that's needed for the next 12 months. Um, This is just that part of the portfolio that for the long term, you don't want to have all in equities because you know that if you keep it all in equities, that portfolio is going to be going down uh, 50%. You don't want to go down 50%. My limit, certainly, or our limit, my wife and and, and my my own limit, is around a 25% decline. And if you look, at the tables, going back to the table uh, uh, B1, B7, and B8, you can see that the worst-case six-month period for that uh, combinations of 50-50, for example, is a loss of about 25%. So as I look back at this first six months, and I look at the loss portion in terms of fixed income, the the return of those three bonds together uh, was, again, in those percentages, was a negative 5.1% for the first six months. So the equity part of the portfolio was down about uh, uh, 15 to 16%. And uh, the bonds are down about 5%. So if you're 50-50, that portfolio, uh, 50-50 portfolio, was, was down uh, around 11 to 12% for the first uh, six months of the year. It isn't even close to reaching our risk limits. And I called Merriman Wealth Management, where our money is managed, and I, I asked how we did uh, in terms of return for the first six months, and it was the 50-50 portfolio was down 12%. Now, some of you know, maybe all of you know, that uh, I also have uh, part of our portfolio being managed using a market timing strategy, and I think it's only fair to talk about how it did during that same six-month period. Now, to begin with, the buy and hold portion is 50-50 stocks and bonds. And what we know from the past is the volatility of a 50-50 buy and hold is about the same as a 70% equity, 30% fixed income. And if that's confusing, that is only become because with market timing, you're going to spend part of the time out of the market. And during this six-month period, they didn't get out perfectly, and all the strategies are purely mechanical. Nobody is guessing what's going to happen next. They just use mostly trend-following strategies. And the outcome over that same six-month period was a loss of 9% instead of of 11. Now I can tell you if the market continues down for the rest of the year it's going to make market timing look very very good because market timing is sitting on mostly uh, cash, money market funds. On the other hand, if the market turns around and takes off like a rocket, market timing is not going to look good for the year. 
So there, there is no strategy that is built to look good all the time. But I would expect generally in declining markets that the market timing portion of the portfolio will do better during a declining market and that the buy and hold will do better during the advancing markets. We shall see in the coming months. But I want to go back now to the, the, the portfolios because I have broken out, looked at all the portfolios uh, that we recently uh, discussed in, uh, in, this, in those different strategies, some that go back to 1928, some that go back to 1970. And I'm sure it won't come as a shock to anybody that, uh, that none of the portfolios made money during the first six months. But the range of losses were lower than what most people experienced. Remember, there are a lot of people who lost over 30%. There are a ton of people who lost over 20% in the equity part of their portfolio. And as I look at the returns of the best-in-class ETF portfolios, that range is from a loss of 10% to a loss of 15.8. That 10% was the all-U.S. Uh, value portfolio. The, uh, by the way, the Vanguard all-value uh, portfolio uh, U.S. only was a loss of 13.7. So there was a considerable advantage to the best in class in the value arena. The Worldwide 4 Fund, a loss of 15.4. The U.S. 4 Fund, best in class, minus 14.3. Oh, and the Vanguard is a minus 16.6 uh, for the, uh, the 4 Fund. Uh, and uh, the worldwide equity ultimate buy and hold uh, was a loss of 15.8. Now, that's a lot of numbers, but what are the bottom line lessons? That there are advantages, particularly when uh, a single asset class really falls uh, out of favor. Uh, the S&P 500 certainly did that in the 2000 through 2009. Certainly high, uh, high growth stocks. Remember that in the 2000 through 2000 bear market, that uh, during a period of time that small and value were doing just fine, that the, that the tech-heavy NASDAQ uh, fell about 80%. So diversification is key. The attempt, of course, in each part of that diversification in terms of selection of asset class, we want to do the best that, the, that we can. We want to do the best in terms of expenses as well as the best in terms of access to things like size and value uh, uh, loading and uh, uh, quality and momentum, uh, all of these different ways that you can pick up uh, small advantages. Now, for those of you who like the process of digging uh, into this information and hoping that you'll get a, a better feeling for 
what the parameters, the guardrails are around these different strategies. I hope you'll join me next week. I, I want to uh, invite you to uh, send me, and and this this podcast will go out on Wednesday. So those people who are listening on Wednesday, uh, I will be uh, talking to Chris. We'll be recording a podcast on Thursday. And so if there are questions you would like me to pose in my conversation uh, with Chris, uh, you are welcome to give me a uh, drop me an email, paul at paulmerriman.com, and in the subject line, if you would put in their question for Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, about this because I got a whole list of what I think are very important questions uh, uh, for Chris to, to, to further let us understand how this is supposed to work. And by the way, uh, we've said this, a thousand times. Past results are no guarantee of future results. And one of the things that I will talk to to Chris about uh, next uh, week is about the importance of past results. There are people who literally do not think past results are really important. Doesn't mean they don't have beliefs of why a certain strategy would be a better strategy, but they they don't want to pin it on the past. So I want to talk a little philosophy because none of us know the future uh, with uh, Chris, and uh, I want to dig a little deeper into his portfolios. Uh, I know that there are those of you who would like us to dig a little into the DFA versus uh, Avantis question because uh, yes, we know that DFA has some funds that have come out. They're very fine funds, but let's do a little comparison of what we know so far so that, uh, so that uh, Chris could give us some insight into that uh, DFA versus uh, Avantis. And by the way, uh, I'll give you a little background on why the differences may not be great uh, when, when we get together because the Avanta story is a is a, it is a fascinating story uh, about its founding and uh, and the people that are working there uh, f- for you, the investors. There are three things we appreciate. There are a lot more than three, but I'll mention three. One is we appreciate it when 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 you refer uh, people to our work. Uh, we have over 700 articles and podcasts and, and, and videos and our portfolios and all those things there to try to help I- investors. So that is one area, and it always feels good when somebody tells me they have provided, whether they paid for the books or they, they sent the free PDF, uh, th- that... Uh, uh, they've they've shared that with their kids. I, that is uh, that is heartwarming. Uh, we also uh, appreciate it uh, when you let us know how we helped you. Your stories about where you were before and and where you are now are, are helpful. We will never share names, but 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 the reality is there are folks who are struggling to get from where they 
maybe shouldn't really be, but maybe it's high expenses, maybe it's uh, uh, actively managed funds, maybe it's tax inefficient funds, whatever it might be. Getting from there to what we would like to see them do for the future, that is not uh, an easy trip. And your stories uh, can, can help people who are struggling with that. Uh, I believe it can help them do better and feel more secure. And finally, those of you who have been kind enough to donate money uh, to, our, uh, to our foundation, uh, it is tax deductible to the extent that, uh, that you, you, you uh, earn that in, with your tax structure, but it's a 501c3 um, uh, foundation. And, and so uh, we will provide you certainly with a letter that uh, uh, indicates that we have received your your uh, tax-deductible contribution. So thank you. Thank you for coming back and continuing to listen. Thank you for spreading the word. And, uh, and, and hopefully we'll finish this year uh, with a big surge in the market. And my market timing portfolio will just look crummy compared to my buy-and-hold portfolio. I will tell you, that will be just fine with me. Thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.